Welcome to season four of Growing Pulse Crops. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on our first episode of the season. Canola or all brassicas are not mycorrhizal associated plants. Peas are. Is there a synergy there? Can you put peas into the soil and, and help out the canola that way? So this past year, we did a trial. We had two uh, strips in a canola field where we had uh, peas interceded with the canola. Farmer Paul Overby joins the show. Paul farms with his wife, Diane, in north central North Dakota. Over the past 15 years, he's converted his farm to no-till. He's also added zone management for nutrient management, diversified his rotations, and added cover crops. His crop mix this year will include field peas, canola, oats, hard red spring wheat, sunflowers, soybeans, and flax. Paul and I discuss his journey toward building healthier soils, the importance of pulse crops in his rotations, and his recent experiences with growing a pea canola intercrop. He says his focus on soil health has really made farming fun again. He likens it to a 10,000-piece puzzle that he's constantly trying to put together. After graduating from NDSU back in 1982, Paul worked off the farm for the next 10 years or so, but has been back farming now for the past 30 years. He says his dad always was interested in soil health, but it was about 15 years ago that Paul was able to make the leap into no-till. Before we started farming, I told my wife that the thing I was most concerned about was a drought. And obviously the drought of 88, 89 was fresh on my mind. And ironically, in 1993 is the year it started raining in the Devil's Lake Basin. And it rained and rained and rained. <laughs> so we had a totally different experience than what we were anticipating. And through that time frame, we kept you know, trying to farm as best as we could. I was having trouble managing everything in terms of getting the crops planted and, and all of that. And one of the things then after the 1996 Freedom to Farm Bill was passed that allowed us to try other things out on our fields, we started adding, in addition to the flax, then sunflowers and field peas. And those were to try to capture or to expand the growing seasons. Peas, obviously, we could plant and harvest earlier, and the sunflowers we could plant and harvest later. And so it gave me a way to spread out my harvest load from August until into October. Uh, November, December, whenever the sunflowers came off. And so we were trying to find how to reshape, once Freedom to Farm came along, reshape our our operation to uh, work within that. Meanwhile, my dad was always big into the soil health. It wasn't called that then, but he had attended Mandak Zero-Till meetings in the 80s and encouraged me to start going to them. And and I did, and, and a couple of other things like the Uh, USDA ARS Center in Mandan had a day every winter. So I started going to those and the whole concept of no-tilling was just emerging. You know, the the dolls of Amity uh, and the the, uh, Concord, excuse me, the Concord Air Cedar was just coming out. So all of those things were intriguing, again, as a way to manage for labor and time, uh, save the resources of having to work the field so many times. And we were in the typical chisel plow twice in the fall cultivated again in the spring and then plant with a distill combination. So the field was getting a lot of tillage, but it also took a lot of time. And so I was trying to figure out ways to do that because with a smaller farm, I was also working off farm. And so balancing the two of them, time became a real issue, time management. So that kind of then in the the late 90s into the early 2000s started me thinking about how can I start no-tilling? And 
those were some difficult years. You know, the mid-90s were pretty good with some prices. And then as we got into the early 2000s, those were very, very tough years. And so we didn't have the finances available to get into no-till. But I'd done all the homework. So when the opportunity came to get into no-till, I jumped with both feet. (laughs) And that opportunity presented itself in the form of a tractor big enough to pull an air seeder. And Paul made an executive decision to buy it. Well, my wife was away working in the legislative session in 2005, and I was at an auction sale, and a tractor that was big enough to pull an air seeder came up for sale, and I bought it. (laughs) And then I told her about it later. (laughs) So so that was part of it, was getting, getting the power to pull an air seeder. And then the second was a air seeder, a used air seeder, was sitting on the lot, equipment lot in Kandu, North Dakota, and, and I've been driving by it and driving by it and driving by it. And so uh, simultaneously, I had a tractor that I could afford and an air seeder that I could afford. And that allowed me to get started. Well, par- apparently she stuck with you. So yeah. it, w- it w- could have been too big of a <laughs> too big of a violation. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't a terrible one, but it was, it was kind of a humorous phone call. Guess what, honey? I just bought a tractor. You did what? <laughs> And so at that time, with the farming experience, knowledge, and equipment, Paul was ready to begin his journey into no-till. But that didn't mean it was easy. He says despite his preparations, the learning curve was steep. I was the only guy in the neighborhood doing it, so there wasn't the ability to just you know drive down the road and ask somebody else how to, how to get started. And I knew less than I thought I knew. <laughs> so, and then the other thing that was interesting is this. Again, I mentioned the, the rain issue. And so a lot of the no-till interest in the 80s was because of dryness. And so people were trying to conserve moisture and the tools were designed to do that. But then we get into the 90s and, and on into the 2000s and we're having exactly the opposite problem. We have wet, wet, wet. So as the land was no-tilled, so the seeding operation was going great, but over a couple of years of, of wetness, those fields were absorbing the water because they weren't being tilled. So the water was going in, but there was still a, a barrier underneath of them, like the chisel plow uh, layer, not, a, not quite a plow pan, but kind of that same concept where the water wasn't moving through the soil. It would get trapped in the top four to six inches. And there was a lot of prevent plant all over up here. but that became a challenge because if you can't till, then what do you do to dry out the soil? There were some real struggles there during those wet years trying to figure out how to how to manage it. Now, I would advise somebody pretty quickly, get out there and plant a cover crop. Aerial seed it, float it on, whatever you need to do, get a cover crop growing on that. We didn't know that back then. And in fact, that was one of the topics at our Mandex zero-till meetings was what do you do with all this moisture when you can't till your land? And and so even experienced no-tillers were very, very frustrated by how wet their fields were because they were absorbing water, but they weren't seeing them get dry enough to get on the the land. So that was some of the early challenges with no-tilling that we had to kind of learn how to manage. And Paul had already started growing peas before he switched to no-till, but his interest in pulses grew as he started to understand the benefits they can have to not only his economics, but on his soil health program as well. 
So we did start growing the peas, pretty sure it was in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, prior to no-till. Uh, we did bring the peas in as a way of, of labor management, planting and harvesting early. And there was uh, a market, Dakota Dry Bean at the time did have a pea market, so that was relatively close by and easy to uh, ship into. And I think one of those years, there was probably a good contract, and I chatted with them at like Lake Region Extension Roundup about peas and kind of got a feel of it, and then decided to give it a go. And then tried a small acre. I think our first out was maybe like 40 acres just to you know try them out and see if it worked. And that worked, and, and so that was, that was a, a good thing. And then we've had, had peas at least some acreage of them every every year i think since then there might have been a year or two for rotational reasons just dropped them but most of the time we've had peas in rotation and then as we got into the whole whole soil health side of things then having peas in our rotation started switching for other reasons right some of the value in having them in the rotation started showing up as we started learning about our muscular microrhizobial fungi that uh, Chris Nichols was talking about when she was at the uh, ARS station in Mandan and the role that peas play in that. And then as we got into learning about cover crops in 2011, 12, 13, then peas became another element because again, with that early harvest, it was easier to plant cover crops quickly after a pea crop than say a wheat that might get harvested into, into September. And I don't think we've specifically talked much about our muscular mycorrhizal fungi or AMF on this podcast. Paul shares why the important role of this fungi clicked for him when he first started learning about these fungal networks. So when I first started farming, my dad had his most fantastic year he ever had. 1992 was like the year to retire because everything yielded better than he'd ever had in his life. Just one of those Cinderella years. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, so you take soil tests and it tells you you have so much nitrogen in your soil. And then you fertilize for, at that time, a 35, 40 bushel wheat crop or a 50 bushel barley crop. And yet you're harvesting 80 bushel barley and 50 bushel wheat. Where did all the rest of the nitrogen come from? And... His answer was, well, I'm not sure. I guess it had to have come from the soil. And so that question has always been there. And Chris Nichols started helping answer that question for me. When I went to the meetings that she was talking about the role of fungi in both breaking down the mineral nutrients in the soil and then transferring them to the roots of the plants, it was like, aha, that's how that happens. And then she also talked about how important those networks are and how it's critical to not disrupt them or how tillage disrupts them and makes them have to start all over again. And how critical that is to the whole success of getting nutrients from the soil into, into the plants. So the role of AMF is now you know, widely talked about. People talk about fungi in the soil and how important it is. But at the time, so this is not quite 20 years ago now, that was kind of new information for most of us. And that has become kind of a cornerstone, if you will, for how we look at soil health now on our farm in terms of the crops we choose and where they fit into our rotation. So, for example, I want to have peas. We use about, about 10%, 10 to 15% of our acres are in peas every year. And one of the considerations is that they are 
a crop that builds that fungus network in the soil as part of what they do. And while peas can be very helpful in building that fungal network in the soil, they're not generally known for being great at producing residue for pulse soil health. And that's where cover crops and lately intercropping enter the picture. When we had a field tour this summer, looking at our intercropping, one of the people on the tour was in a wheat field and he looked down at the ground and he said, how long have you been no-tilling this? And I said, well, for over 15 years, and he was amazed that I kind of said, why? And he said, well, you don't have a big buildup of residue. And it's like, no, we don't, because our residues are constantly cycling. And in fact, some of the soil health tests we get back would suggest that we need a higher, more carbon in our soil. So I need to figure out how to, how to do a better job of that. And some of that fits in because of crops like peas, where they don't have a high carbon content. When we harvest our peas, now, this past year, because it was so dry, we did not plant a cover crop. But one of the ways to manage residue on pea fields, of course, is to plant a cover crop. And so we've been working really hard at planting cover crops in our pea field and trying to include a lot of uh, grain species, whether it be trit kale or rye. Uh, I, I use annual rye grass, not cereal rye, but annual rye grass, winter wheats, things like that, that would have a grassy crop to kind of offset the, the fact that we've just had a broadleaf crop. So. That way, we're, we're kind of trying to help that residue issue out there and put other growing roots in there, which, of course, is one of our big soil health principles, right? Always have a living root. And if you're raising peas, I don't think you have any excuse not to plant a cover crop because you harvest them early enough where you can always get a cover crop growing on a pea field if there's enough moisture to germinate. Always on the hunt for new ideas to improve his farm, Paul started watching what was happening in intercropping. Eventually, he saw enough to interest him into giving a pea canola intercrop a try for himself last year. I've been watching since we only lived 30 miles south of the Canadian border. Some of the work that the Canadians have been doing with intercropping peas and canola, it seems to be one of them up there that's, that's been a big hit. And intrigued about it, just to see what, what would happen. How would that work? Canola or all brassicas are not mycorrhizobial associated plants. Peas are. Is there a synergy there? Can you put peas into the soil and, and help out the canola that way? Uh, what about the maturity dates? What about you know harvesting these? All, all of those kinds of things. So this past year, we did a trial. We had two uh, strips in a canola field where we had uh, peas interseeded with the canola. And I don't have enough runs on my air seeder to plant them at the same time. So we planted the peas first since they're growing a little deeper and then we overseeded with canola. So that's that's the first run of trying peas in a non-resobial associated crop and seeing if we can draw some benefit off of having the two of them together. One of the successes, I wanted to see at least 125% of control yield. And in the PLP scripts, we were at 137% of control yield. I still need to get those all graded to see what, if there was any impact on quality, as well as to have them screened out to see what proportion of that was peas and what proportion of it was canola. So that's in a research project here for the next two weeks uh, to get that done and have a better handle on you know, which is yielding more in that situation. 
it went well enough for me where next year we're going to then expand to 40 acres of this uh, piola crop and maybe try a few different things with fertility levels or seeding rates of the, the peas to see you know, what works best. Well, we'll have to get Paul back on the show at some point to report on how much of that 137% of control yield was pea versus how much was canola. But he says he was really pleased with the overall production. He's now doing the work that he said was one of his biggest initial concerns with intercropping, separating the two commodities. Now, the nice part about peas and canola is they are obviously very different sizes. And we do have a rotary screener, so I can set the screens up to to clean the peas out of the canola fairly easily. I was concerned about storage, uh, moisture, you know, would it have an issue because of the peas being bigger and the canola being smaller and, you know, maturing at different times, would that create an issue? Uh, So far, I've not seen an issue. And part of it was because of the very dry fall that we had, you know, everything came off dry, actually almost too dry. So this year, 2022, that was the case. That may not be the case moving forward, in which case I would probably, if it you know, came off a little with more moisture, and I would be much more concerned about getting them separated right away. And actually with planting a 40-acre field next year, I'm going to be contacting a guy in our neighborhood that has a whole cleaning system on a truck. And I'm going to have him come to the farm and see if we can get that cleaned right after harvest, just to have it done and kind of peace of mind because uh, then you're only managing the storage dynamics for one crop, not two. Paul told me this intercropping experiment almost didn't happen. In addition to being worried about separating the two commodities, he was concerned about the management of growing these two crops at once. But he went ahead with it, even in a year when he couldn't get it planted until late in the spring. Well, part of what's kept me from trying it is just uh, the potential management headache, you know, and why I chose to do this in a year that ended up being the latest seeding date that we've ever had, I don't know, but I did. And it was very, very tempting to abandon the whole concept when we didn't start seeding anything until late May. But I chose to just, no, we've done it. Now we will find out how it works in an adverse situation. And so because we had to seed first and then seed could all over the top of it, you know, so you got two passes in the same acres. That's a concern now. We're, I'm actively looking at an air seeder with a double shoot to uh, give me some more options there. So that, that end of it is, is a challenge. And then, of course, there's the, the headache on the other end of separating it. And we have been working so hard over the last five years to try to get cover crops in our operation in the fall of the year that it's like, do I really want to have additional responsibilities in the fall when I'm already struggling to get cover crops planted? So those are the kind of the two concerns on both ends of the planting season. Whereas, you know, I was planting peas to help spread out my labor and time management. And now by double cropping, I'm just adding to it. So is there enough value in doing that? Even if there's enough value to pay for just straight economics, is there enough value in there to pay for the additional management that it takes on, on both ends of that? And I, I can't answer that right now. Uh, we'll know over time. And then I think one of, the, one of the questions will be, if we are building soil health, which is a big part of the reason I want to do this, it isn't just economics. I'm not 
not necessarily doing this to make more money as I am. Can I build my soil health faster by polycropping than I can by straight cropping, even though I've got canola in the rotation and then maybe the next year I'll plant peas into my canola stubble. You know, there's a good thing there. You have low, low mycorrhizobial population. Now we have a high mycorrhizobial crop like peas, so we're going to restore some of that. But would I be better planting the two of them together? Do I get a synergistic benefit by planting the two of them together? And so that was, that's a big part of my research, if you want to call it that, question of planting these two things together. The other things I've been kind of contemplating is what other crops would peas work with and what other polycrop mixes would work well together. And so I did actually try peas and flax together, a little very small strip of that, and that's a no-go. <laughs> that didn't work. So yeah, in order to thresh out the flax, you have to set the concaves too tight and, and crack the peas. So that's not going to happen again. But I'm thinking, is it potential to plant something like peas and wheat together, for example? Would there be a way to do that? Or if it's winter wheat, can we add winter wheat and plant peas into that? Those two would harvest at the same time, relatively at the same time. You know, what are the what are the chemical constraints becomes a, an issue there. So I'm trying to figure out if there are other ways of polycropping. Again, I mentioned, so we're planting seven crops out of about 1,300 crop acres. That gets to be pretty interesting to try to manage all of that. But if we could plant out of, instead of seven crops, we had the same seven crops, but we were planting peas and canola always together. Well, now we're combining the planting and the harvesting operations and working that way and reducing the amount of different fields that we have, if you want to call it that. And so that's one of the things that, that we're contemplating being able to, to evaluate this for. And I should mention, Tim, on this, this piola that we're going to do for 2023. So we've actually ordered in a Clearfield canola variety. And because peas are also tolerant to what's now being called, I think it's be called Beyond Extra. The company had a separate label for Raptor and, and Beyond. They were exactly the same chemical, but they weren't labeled. <laughs> they weren't labeled to cross spray. So now they've combined all of that and call it Beyond Extra. Hopefully they didn't raise the price as a result. So I can spray my Piola with Beyond Extra, be totally legal from the uh, label standpoint. And then the other thing that we can do is we can put down Sinolan as a pre. So now we'll be able to have some a good chemical program to help with weed issues, which is always a problem in polycrops. And so looking for things that allow not just the management side, but also the, the weed management is a big thing when you get into polycrop. Whether it's as a primary crop, an inner crop, or as a cover crop, Paul sees pulses as an important part of his rotation and something to consider for anyone who wants to build healthier soils. A pulse crop, in my opinion, to rebuild soil health needs to be a part of your actual crop rotation, and it should also be included in your cover crops. So when we're planting, when we plant a cover crop following wheat or oats, oats works well for cover crops for the same reason as peas, it's harvested early. You can get out there and plant a cover crop and we're always including a pea in that. And other things we might even include uh, lentils. Yeah, lentils and peas are always going to be in, in that mix when we're following a grass crop like wheat or oats. And so 
you know, Dr. Franzen has done an excellent job of presenting how much our soils have degraded in North Dakota over the last 100 years. And the really good thing about that is we can, if we deliberately work at it, we can rebuild those soils. And it takes some time, but we can do this. If regenerative ag is what gets people's hot button and makes them do that, that's fine. If it's soil health that gets them to do that, wonderful. Just get it done. Just get it done. A great place to end. Thank you so much to Paul Overby for sharing these experiences with us on the show. I'm excited to kick off this next season of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. Make sure you're a subscriber to the show on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss our next episode with Dr. Perry Miller. There used to be some thinking that, well, if I produce, you know, X number of bushels of yield of pea or lentils, then I'll have so many pounds of nitrogen, you know, transfer to the next crop. We've proved pretty well that's not true. That's not the way it works. And there actually was some, some good research that came out of uh, North Dakota State University that suggested maybe adopting more of a flat credit mentality. In other words, if you grow a pulse crop, just assume there's going to be some amount of nitrogen credit that you can apply to a subsequent crop. And it seems like that's closer to reality. Again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that upcoming episode, plus much, much more this season. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the season, and we want to make sure this information is relevant to you. If you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.